United States Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit. Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. The United States Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit is now open according to law. God save the United States and this honorable court. Good morning. Uh, we've convened this morning to rehear this petition for writ of mandamus on bunk. Um, We've had good experiences with Zoom oral arguments. Uh, one of the good things about it is that if we lose a connection, we'll know it immediately because we'll see it. Um, one thing I would like um, you to be mindful of uh, is that if you're muted, um, don't forget about that when it, if it's time for you to speak. Um, uh, Mr. Cassell, I understand that you've um, you're, you split your time in half. Uh, uh, we're going to um, ask questions sequentially uh, in this format, and uh, if and I'm going to try to make sure everyone has an opportunity to ask a question, and and I'll make sure that you have an opportunity to answer it. Um, but we'll, we're going to try to be mindful of everybody's time uh, this morning. Um, if you would, um, please, please begin. Good morning, uh, Chief Judge Pryor, and may it please the court, Paul Cassell for Courtney Wilde. In 2004, Congress enacted the Crime Victims' Rights Act to be a sweeping bill of rights protecting crime victims throughout the criminal justice process. The intent behind the act is well described in an amicus brief filed with this court by the congressional architects of the act. Senator Feinstein and former Senators Kyle and Hatch. As they explained, they enacted several provisions to the CVRA to ensure that courts would understand that it applies pre-charging. For example- Mr. Cassell, I'm sorry, I'm gonna to have to interrupt you. Uh, Ms. Tisa, the, the uh, clock is not run. Thank you. Sorry, thank you. Go ahead, Mr. Cassell. Yes. So the congressional sponsors added several provisions to ensure that courts would understand the act applies pre-charging. For example, uh, subsection C1 indicates that officers who are, quote, engaged in the detection, investigation, or prosecution of crime must accord victims their rights. And that interpretation of the law, extending it pre-charging, makes considerable sense. If the law did not extend pre-charging, then the careful Bill of Rights that Congress set up could be always circumvented by prosecutors and defense attorneys. As in this case, they could simply negotiate a resolution of the case pre-charging, and then victims would never know what had happened in their case. I guess the problem I'm having with your um, argument is that the question is of whether the act may um, impose some obligations pre-charge, but whether there are enforceable rights for the victim pre-charge. And it seems to me that your interpretation requires giving the word motion two different meanings in the same statute. If there hasn't been a charge filed yet, it would operate as a civil pleading that commences a civil action. But if it's if there is a pending criminal action, then it would then the word would be given its ordinary meaning, and it would be a motion filed in that action. I've never seen an example where we do the, interpret a word that way. 
Well, you'd have to interpret the word that way under this law because the, the circuit has previously held crime victims cannot intervene in a criminal case. And so they cannot file a motion in the case. They have to file a separate action. And well, this, this statute gives them the right to do that. Well, the, no, one, this, no one doubts that they can file a motion in a pending criminal action under this act. Well, what, it, what the statute says in subsection D1 is that victims can assert their rights. And then in D3, it again says they can assert their rights. It uses the term motion, as you mentioned. But remember that the term motion is used, I believe, even in the same sentence with a provision that says rights can be asserted even if no prosecution is underway. So Judge if Wilson, no do you have a question? Well, uh, Mr. Castle, I have uh, some of the same concerns that were um, expressed by Judge Schoflat in his concurrence. Um, through the majority opinion, the uh, panel, the prior panel opinion. And uh, I'm looking at subsection D6 of section 3771. The language reads, nothing in this chapter shall be construed to impair the prosecutorial discretion of the attorney general or any officer under his discretion. Of course, not everyone who enters into a non-prosecution agreement is as unsympathetic as the subject in this case. I mean, Mr. Epstein was a pretty bad guy, but you're asking the court to apply precedent that will apply in future cases that may not be as bad as this one. But this is my question. If we accept your reading of the act, how does a U.S. attorney enter into a non-prosecution agreement with the subject or target of an investigation who is cooperating and the cooperation requires confidentiality without which the safety of the cooperator might be jeopardized or the investigation might be compromised. Yeah, so in that situation, it would be unreasonable for a victim to confer with the prosecutor about the details of that cooperation agreement, at least at the point of, in the case where there was some issue about disclosing the identity of an informant or something along those lines. That's precisely why Congress added the word reasonable in subsection A5. Uh, and you'll notice that it was the only place where Congress added that word. That's because Congress recognized that a conferral right could exist in situations where it might not be reasonable to allow a confer. So the situation that you've described would be very simply handled by saying it would be unreasonable to confer. And remember, the Fifth Circuit has been doing this now for 12 years. They process 16,000 criminal cases a year. And the uh, issue that you've described has never arisen in the Fifth Circuit. Judge Martin. Uh, thank you, uh, Mr. Cassells. I, I appreciate the work you do for victims. Um, I, this case has taken a lot of turns since uh, Ms. Wild filed it in 2008. I, I just uh, need your help in kind of getting oriented to where we are now. Assume for me that she wins every legal and factual uh, issue presented to any court from now till, till uh, when this litigation ends. What, what does uh, her win allow her to do? Her win allows her to in, uh, uh, assert and have her rights under the Crime Victims' Rights Act. So she, uh, let's assume you remanded the district court. The district court agrees with us that the illegal non-prosecution agreements, provisions giving immunity to co-conspirators needs to be rescinded. Then she has an opportunity to confer with prosecutors. 
That's all we're asking for. I mean, Judge Wilson is right to be mindful of issues involving prosecutorial discretion. But the only thing we're asking for in this case is a conferral with prosecutors. Ms. Wild can be very persuasive about why charges should be uh, filed in this case. And that's the opportunity that Congress gave her in the CVRA. And that's the opportunity that she's entitled to enjoy under the Crime Victims' Rights Act. And at this point, we're talking about the co-defendants, right? Correct. Okay, thank you. Judge Pryor. Mr. Cassell, the language that I find most problematic for your interpretation is in Section 3771B, entitled Rights Afforded. And I'm wondering why the language in any court proceeding, followed by rights described in subsection A, why doesn't that mean that crime victims don't have any CVRA rights until court proceedings commence? Well, that provision in B1 needs to be uh, read in conjunction with D3. D3 says even if no prosecution is underway, victims can assert their rights, and they would do that by filing some kind of an action ancillary to a criminal proceeding. And once they have filed that action, then within that action, they file various motions. That's exactly what happened in this case. We filed a, a petition of asserting rights and then ultimately filed a motion for summary judgment and a motion for remedies. All of those, by the way, you'll notice in B1 would be involving a crime committed against the victim. It doesn't say involving a court proceeding or a prosecution or charges that have been filed. They all involve a crime. And that's why Congress very carefully drafted this uh, act. If again, if you look at uh, Good morning, Mr. Castle. Um, uh, I uh, you know, have, have sort of emptied my barrels on the interpretive issues in the cases you know. I've got a a practical question that picks up on Judge Wilson's question about prosecutorial discretion. Can you explain to me how a pre-charge interpretation actually works in real practice? It dawns on me that because crime victim is a defined term, mean, meaning one who is proximately harmed as a result of a federal offense, that in a pre-charge world, the first thing that a district court has to do is to determine whether or not the person before him or her is a crime victim, and thus whether a federal offense has occurred. How can it be that, that, it, that it wouldn't impair prosecutorial discretion to determine in advance, literally to prejudge whether a, a federal offense has occurred before a charging decision has been made and while the investigation is ongoing? Well, the way this works in the real world is that under the VRRA, the Victims' Rights and Restitution uh, Act, a uh, federal officer is responsible for making a determination at the earliest possible point in an investigation who the victims are. And that's why this issue has just been so rarely litigated, uh, even in, for example, the Fifth Circuit. But because it seems to me that that is quite different from a judge determining in advance that a federal offense has in fact occurred. To make that determination, won't a judge have to convene a hearing, have witnesses, introduce documentary evidence, all in advance of a charging decision? That just seems uh, cart before the horse to me. Uh, no, that uh, will not happen. Uh, and it, it, you need look no, uh, no further than this very case. Remember in 2006, uh, prosecutors in this case determined that Ms. Wild, for example, was a victim of a federal crime. They even sent her a letter to that effect. You can again, again, I take your point. Oh, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. Uh, uh, I was going to turn it to Judge Branch. Yep. 
yes, Mr. Cassell, uh, I'm not sure you had enough time to fully address uh, the chief's question about whether it's troubling that we would look at motion in two different contexts, and I wanted to give you that opportunity. Thank you. Uh, I think you can look, uh, for example, at jo Judge Hall's persuasive dissent, which talks about the term motion and explains how there's a common sense interpretation of that word. Remember that once uh, a victim asserts a right, they would be doing that by filing uh, some sort of an action as we did in this case. And then once that action is docketed, you would file motions in the case uh, to uh, assert particular, uh, particular rights. That's exactly what happened here and what, exactly what would happen uh, ordinarily. I think it's important to understand some of the arguments of the government assume that there's a sophistication of, of someone to determine whether circuit splits are breaking in various ways. This act was designed to be interpreted by crime victims, most of whom will lack legal counsel. And that's why you have to give each of these terms a common sense interpretation rather than some hyper-technical interpretation that Judge might work for lawyers. If I don't have any questions myself, but counsel, if you would address uh, what I think was Judge Newsom's question or where he was going of, in a case not like this one, where someone thinks they are a victim, but no letter has been sent and the government hasn't identified someone as a victim, how someone would initiate the lawsuit and how it would be determined that they were a crime victim. I think that's what Judge Newsom was driving at and, and you could address that question. And I'm sorry if I'm butchering your question, Judge Newsom. <laughs> no, thank you. I, I think I understand the question and I think it revolves around the rights that, that is at issue. Uh, if there's a right to fairness, the, the right to fairness says that the government must treat victims with fairness. So that presupposes treating or an interaction between a government official and the victim. And that's what the court would look at. With the right to confer, it says the right to confer with an attorney for the government in the case. And as you know, we adopt the approach of Judge Hull's dissent and say, look, the right to conferral exists when there has been a completion of an investigation, an attorney has been drafting charges, and negotiations are moving forward between a defense attorney and a prosecutor. In that limited situation, it's very easy to determine what kinds of charges are, are at issue and to make that uh, determination. That's why these issues have not Judge, arisen in the first Judge, Judge uh, Lagoa. Years. Judge Lagoa. Hi, um, good morning, Mr. Cassell. I just had a quick question following up on Judge Martin's uh, question, which is, it, what does her win allow her to do here? Um, your answer was it would allow you to confer with the government, but hasn't your client already done that in the Southern District of New York with the government? Absolutely not. Uh, and this, by the way, is a red herring that the government keeps throwing out, uh, which is frankly uh, somewhat frustrating. <clears throat> Ms. Wilde was sexually abused in the Southern District of Florida. Prosecutors in the Southern District of New York have no authority to prosecute, for example, the sex trafficking crimes under 1591 that were committed against Ms. Wilde in another jurisdiction. She wants to talk to prosecutors in Florida about prosecuting sex offense crimes that were committed against her in the Southern District of Florida. And she can't do that because it's the position of the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern but District But does she want to speak to them about her, the uh, crimes that were uh, done to her by Mr. Epstein? No, or by co an alleged co-conspirators? Alleged co-conspirators. Okay, thank you. Judge Brasher? 
I just, I would appreciate it if you would respond to what I kind of view as the second question that we presented and the government's argument that there may be some right um, that the victim has pre-charge, but there's really no statutorily created judicial remedy for a violation of that right. And if there is a remedy, it's through this administrative process that was established in the statute. Well, the administrative process does absolutely nothing for Ms. Wild. Uh, even the Justice Department's own website says that. That's why Congress very carefully set up an enforcement mechanism in subsection D. D1 says that victims can assert their rights. They can assert those rights even if no prosecution is underway. And so that's exactly what Ms. Wild has done here. She's asserted her rights. And uh, indeed, the, the district judge in this case has found exactly what would happen on a remand. On a but remand. you're alleging you're alleging that the prosecutors engaged in, I mean, frankly, you're alleging prosecutorial misconduct here and a willful violation of the statute. And so why isn't the remedy not, well, she gets an opportunity to talk to these people, but the remedy would be that they get fired, right? And that would be something that you would get through that administrative process and not through a judicial uh, process. That's a meaningless remedy since the architects of this non-prosecution agreement have all left government employment. So, uh, and Judge, it would also Judge Choflat. Both questions. Judge Hall. I have a record question, Mr. Cassell. Uh, this goes to the terms of the agreement in September 2007, and it goes to Judge Martin's question and others about the remedy here. The agreement grants full federal immunity to four named conspirators and all other conspirators of Jeffrey Epstein with regard to and it lists about 30 crimes in the Southern District. Is that correct? That is absolutely correct. And one of the requests was that those co-conspirators uh, never cooperated, never talked to the government, never did anything, but yet they were granted full immunity for all of their crimes. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. And Ms. Wilde never had a chance to describe what those co-conspirators had done to her. And, and in fact, the government can still do that after they talk to Ms. Wilde, as in any of these cases, they can make whatever decision to indict, not indict, whatever they want to do. We are, that's absolutely correct. We okay. are just asking for enforcement of okay. your rights, not right. any. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Uh, um, uh, Mr. Cassell, you've saved uh, 15 minutes uh, for rebuttal. Uh, we're going to hear uh, from Ms. Steinberg. May it please the court. My name is Jill Steinberg and I represent the United States. Even if the law did not require it, the United States Attorney's Office in Florida should have communicated to Ms. Wilde in a transparent and straightforward way. Although we are sympathetic to Ms. Wilde and apologize to her for what happened, her legal arguments are incorrect. The CVRA's text, structure, and purpose within a comprehensive legislative scheme to safeguard victims' rights show that the CVRA does not attach until the government has filed charges against a defendant. And even if certain CVRA rights did apply pre-charge, the statute does not authorize a district court to do what she asked for here. The panel majority and concurring opinions recognize several dangers of the petitioner's interpretation of the CVRA to pre-charge investigative activities. That danger is even greater if victims are allowed to bring lawsuits against prosecutors and seek discovery while a case is under investigation. This would interfere with prosecutorial discretion and harm efforts by law enforcement to bring charges and obtain convictions against individuals such as Mr. Epstein. Judge Hall. 
you have any questions of the government? Oh, all right, you're gonna start with me. Yeah, I said we would uh, go in reverse. Uh, all right, thank you, Chief. Uh, Ms. Steinberg, um, no. I have a record question for you and I, ju I just wanna make sure um, I understand. First of all, at oral argument, the government conceded that all of these co-conspirators never talked to the government. They never did anything at all to obtain this immunity agreement. That was conceded at oral argument. Do you remember that? I don't remember talking about whether the co-conspirators cooperated or not. Uh, I, I don't myself have knowledge of what... Yeah, I have a footnote in my dissent about that, and you don't dispute that. We don't dispute any of the underlying facts here. There's no material fact at issue before this court. There was no conferral with Ms. Wild about the non-prosecution agreement in any, in any respect, whether it had to do with Mr. Epstein or any okay. of this. And also, I want to make it clear, the negotiations with Mr. Epstein's uh, various defense counsel took literally months. There were months of negotiations, and the victim, victims during that time were not spoken to at all. We're not talking about them getting documents or doing anything, the law just provides you agreed that they have a right to confer, right? A reasonable right to confer. We, we agree that the facts are what they are. Um, there no, I'm, a I'm talking of... about that there would be no request for documents doing the right to confer. It's just a reasonable right to confer. They get a right to speak to the prosecutor to know what's going on, that's all. Is that correct? The statute provides them with a right to confer. The, the request for documents has arisen because Ms. Wilde has been authorized, at least now at this point, to pursue a civil cause of action against the, the government. The request for documents was part of the remedy for the violation of the right to confer. But if you interpret the statute as written, it only provides her a right to confer that the government is obligated to do. Is that correct? I, I, I know you I respectfully whether disagree with whether the document part of it. Post, whether, excuse me, whether it's pre-charge or post-charge, she still has a right to confer, right? I respectfully disagree with the part with respect to the documents. The documents were produced in connection with the liability portion of the case. There has been no remedy Judge, that has been determined yet. Judge, no, no, no question. Okay. Uh, Judge Brasher. Have you or anybody else from the government talked to representatives of Ms. Wild about this case or about this no non-prosecution agreement? Yes, we, okay. we have had- so you have, so you have conferred with, with representatives of Ms. Wild about this case? We have been talking to Mr. Cassell and Mr. Edwards since the genesis of this case, and we've made efforts to confer with them. Uh, there have been other members of the Justice Department who have also had discussions with them about various aspects of the case. That, I think that was briefed in our first round um, to the court. And so there have been a number of discussions with counsel about the case by various members of the Justice Department. Let me ask you a question about, um, so this wasn't highlighted in your brief uh, to us as an en banc court, but it was mentioned and, and discussed in the panel opinion um, that's the Office of Legal Counsel, Counsel's memo about interpreting this statute and also your regulations, the Department of Justice regulations about interpreting the statute. If we were to determine that this was an ambiguous statute, would we have to defer uh, to the Office of Legal Counsel's memo or to the regulations that the Department of Justice has passed pursuant to notice and comment? I don't know that the OLC 
document is something that would be relevant to that particular question. I think the OLC document is indicative of the fact that even post-Dean, the Justice Department the statute as applying after a charging document um, exists and a court proceeding is underway. I think the statute does allow a victim to avail herself of the administrative remedies through the department. Um, and that's, that's the option that the CBRA gives her if this court were to determine that it applied pre-charge. And even if it was simply post-charge, um, then that is also her remedy if she can't avail herself of the other remedies that are provided specifically in the statute. Judge uh, Lagoa. Judge Lagoa. Thank you. You're frozen. Uh, hold on. Let's stop the clock for a moment, Stephanie. All right, Judge Lagoa. Thank you. I apologize. My question is not that interesting to have waited for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, go ahead and ask it. All right. Uh, what, okay, let me compose myself. I'm sorry. <laughs> Um, the the statute in question uh, defines uh, crime victim, but it doesn't define accused. Uh, the ordinary plain meaning of the definition of accused is a person charged with or on trial for a crime. Uh, in this case, uh, there was no charging document that was brought. Was there? So how can we interpret this statute in a way that requires the government to have to notify a victim prior to an accused being named? I think the statute would have to be changed. The way it's currently written is it's geared towards a post-charging events. And the first listed item is, of course, um, protection from an accused, as opposed to the VRA, which is talking about a suspected offender. So when you look at the entirety of the legislation that sort of covers the gambit of, of victims' rights, you see the contrast between the VRA, which is talking about the whole course of events um, from investigation to conviction to sentence versus the CVRA, which is talking about the time that a person is charged um, through the conclusion of the case. And so when you look at those two things together, I think, think you kind of see clearly why it is that the CVRA sort of fits into, the pack, into that picture at that time. Judge Luck. Counsel, why isn't the motion remedy uh, a private remedy, um, and I'm, I'm specifically referring to the second question that the en banc uh, court asked. So I know that in your brief, you talk about the administrative remedy as being an alternative remedy, but here, the statute under uh, D3 or D2 specifically authorizes this motion for relief. Um, and is, whether it's in the course of an ongoing proceeding, whether it's a separate proceeding itself, is that not a private remedy that's specifically authorized by the statute? Well, I think the statute contemplates is that the victim is going to make a motion in an ongoing criminal case to avail ourselves of the remedies that are listed in five. Let's assume that's um, true. Let's assume that's right, that it's, it can only be in an ongoing proceeding. Is that not still a private remedy, whether it, it's in an ongoing proceeding or something else? Is that not a mechanism for a private person to assert rights that are granted to them by the statute? And again, assume for the moment that the statute applies pre-charge. Right. Yeah. No, that, I mean, that's true. I mean, she is not a party to the criminal action but the CVRA authorizes a victim in these limited circumstances to assert a motion in an ongoing criminal case for the remedies that are outlined in the statute. 
but nothing more. So you would agree that that is a private remedy for that's authorized by the statute under the framework you've just said, which is it applies once there is a proceeding and it must be asserted in a proceeding. Correct. Judge Branch. Uh, yes, Ms. Steinberg. Um, in 2006 and 2007, the U.S. Attorney's Office sent letters to the victims in this case, notifying them that they have rights under the CVRA. And those letters listed all of the rights that appear in 3771A. And in September of 2007, Mr. Epstein signed the non-prosecution agreement. In November of 2007, U.S. Attorney's Office corresponded with Mr. Epstein's lawyers, telling his lawyers that the United States has a statutory obligation to notify the victims of the anticipated upcoming events and their rights associated with the agreement. Again, in November of 2007, the U.S. Attorney's Office sent a draft victim notification letter to Mr. Epstein's lawyers for their review. This letter purported to notify these victims of the plea deal. In December of 2007, the U.S. Attorney's Office uh, once again wrote to Mr. Epstein's lawyers explaining the victim's rights under the CVRA. And in 2008, uh, January of 2008, the U.S. Attorney's Office wrote to the victims explaining their rights under the CVRA and asked for their patience as this case was under investigation. Now you say that the, now the government says that these victims have no CVRA, CVRA rights. What changed? I think what changed is really the, I guess, clarity of the issue. Uh, looking at the record, we do not dispute that those facts are correct. We don't dispute any material issue that's before this court. I think if you look at the record, what the AUSA explained is that she wanted to give as broad protection um, to the victims as possible. And unfortunately in doing so, I think people might've felt misled. People like Ms. Wild might've felt misled, but in terms of what the strict requirements are of the CVRA that never change. And so I think it's sort of a learning lesson for people in my position um, to be careful about what it is that we say and distinguish between policy and what we want to do as good human beings and what it is that the law requires. So there is clarity throughout that process. But Judge, the Judge, Southern... Judge Nisa. Uh, Ms. Steinberg, I want to ask you a question about your new subject matter jurisdiction argument. Um, isn't Mr. Castle pretty clearly... Is it Cassell? I'm so sorry. Is it Cassell? My mistake. Mr. Cassell, um, pretty clearly correct that your interpretation has some pretty bizarre uh, implications in the sense, for instance, that in 2014, we plainly had authority to entertain a mandamus petition. And then suddenly in 2015, with the introduction of an amendment that all agree was intended to enhance, if anything, victims' rights, we lose that authority. And then secondly, as he points out, under your interpretation, uh, your subject matter jurisdiction argument, there would be no authority ever to entertain a mandamus petition pertaining to a violation, a, 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 an alleged violation that occurred in the course of the habeas proceeding where no one is um, actively being prosecuted. With respect to the first component of it, I don't think that we agree that the 2015 amendment changed anyone's authority because it's always been our position that you need to have a criminal proceeding, a, a charging instrument and a subsequent criminal proceeding well, um, so, right, but I, I want to separate uh, the merits point from 
the, the jurisdictional point. The mer your, the, your merits point is um, she could have brought a mandamus petition and she would have lost. Uh, by virtue of my writing at the panel stage, it'll, be, it'll come as no surprise to you that I happen to agree with you about that. But as to the jurisdictional piece, it's a different thing to say she couldn't even have brought it. And what you're saying with respect to subject matter jurisdiction is she couldn't even have brought it post-2015, or at the very least, we couldn't have entertained it. And that just seems odd. And, and I understand that perspective, but I think what we are trying to highlight is we felt the need to bring the jurisdictional issue to the court once we recognized it. But it was almost just as important that it continued to support the proposition that we've advocated for from the beginning is that the statute is really focused on events that happen post-charging. And it's true that the jurisdictional provision isn't entirely logical, nor do I think is Mr. Cassell's retort. Um, but I think what it all goes to is sort of that underlying proposition, which is that the CVRA is pointed towards post-charging events. Judge Jill Pryor. Let me clear the government's position that there's only an enforceable remedy and proceedings are underway with the remedies referred to in D5 referring to reopening the plea sentence. I'm sorry, the... I had a hard time hearing your question. I maybe the connection. I apologize. I'm sorry. I was asking you the government's position that enforceable remedies are limited to the period of time when proceedings are underway. How do you square that with the remedies referred to in D5, the motion to reopen a plea or sentence? Well, if there is a criminal proceeding underway, then that means there will be a, a some kind of entry of a plea at some point, you know, certainly in most cases, um, and then there'll be a subsequent sentencing. And at that point, a victim would be able to move to reopen the plea or sentencing um, if she has met the requirements. And so the existence of those remedies in the context of a court setting, we think reinforces the overall um, thrust of the CVRA, which is to um, exist and to be enforced in a post-charging environment. And what about B3? The best reading of the no prosecution underway um, is first to take the statute as a whole. As Mr. Cassell said, you can't just piece out one item. You have to look at the statute in its entirety. When you look at the statute it's in, in its entirety, whether it's the list of rights, whether it's the fact that a court enforces CVRA rights in the context of an ongoing court proceeding involving an offense against a victim, when you look at the enforcement provision, which is all about um, resentencing um, or reopening a plea agreement, all of this is pointing towards an ongoing proceeding. Um, and you have to take that in that context. We also agree with the majority panel opinion that prosecution is not also just a charging document. It's a charging document plus adversary criminal proceedings that follow it. And that's what sort of distinguishes that particular phrase from the phrase that immediately precedes it, which is assuming that a prosecution is underway. Um, and so we think that's the, the best reading of that provision. Judge, Judge Martin. Uh, thank you. Uh, Ms. Stenberg, uh, I was glad to hear you say that the government has apologized uh, to Ms. Wild, and, but I wanted to just bear down on one point. My, my understanding um, is that one of the things that she found offensive was that the charge that uh, Mr. Epstein ultimately pled to um, might have indicated that she was a prostitute. Has the government affirmatively 
acknowledged um, that, that that is not true, that to the contrary, uh, she was a minor who could not consent to sexual contact. And, uh, you know, would you be willing to apologize for that as well now? Well, I could not agree with you more. Um, she's not a prostitute. Uh, minors cannot consent to sex. That's the department policy. That's the law. Um, and the only reason why it is that he entered a plea to that charge is because that was a charge under state law. It's not a charge under federal law. Can I, can I just follow up real quickly? You mentioned, you know, what we want to do as good human beings. And I know you have a victim witness employee in your office. I mean, what would stop you right this minute from going to Mr. Cassell and saying, what further consultation do you want with regard to the co-defendants? I mean, why, why can't you do that? That, that's happened. But it's, it's his position um, that with, with the agreement in place, the NPA in place, that the conferral is meaningless. And I don't, whether I agree or don't agree, it's not up to me to decide, but that's the position that he has taken. And so the conferral hasn't really gone anywhere from their perspective. Judge Wilson. Well, if there has been conferral, um, why do we still have a case for controversy if that's the remedy that the uh, victims seek in this case? Oh, we, district, we agree with district, that. The district judge said they have rights under the Crime, Crime Victims Restitution Act. I think it's subsection A5, but then determined that the case is moot because Mr. Epstein committed suicide. So if there has been conferral, why isn't why is it? Why do we still have a case of controversy? Oh, well, we 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 agree with that, and that was the first argument that we raised in the initial um, set of briefs. Is the fact that in the course of the this case, um, the case that arises out of the Southern District of Florida that the Northern District took over, we have made a number of efforts to confer, um, and as I indicated, the conferral was deemed meaningless by the petitioner and her counsel because the NPA was still in place. And so they insisted that they needed the remedy of rescission and basically were not going to engage on the conferral. Um, and so that's the position that they've taken and there's, there's really not much else that we could do. And then with respect to the New York case, of course, Mr. Epstein was charged there. He was charged with a conspiracy and substantive sex trafficking for events that happened during this same period of time in New York and Florida. And no one has really denied the fact that New York has done absolutely everything to comply with the CVRA. And Mr. Cassell said what they did was a model for CVRA compliance. And so that was argument below. I don't know that it held a lot of sway for the panel, um, but we, we certainly thought it, it had merit, which is why we raised it. With regard to the remedy of rescission, if it's available, it's clear that the non-prosecution agreement was never presented. It was never presented to the court to begin with. It's not a plea agreement or a deferred agreement. It's a non-prosecution agreement, which doesn't require judicial intervention. Is my understanding about that correct? Yes, it is. Okay. I don't have I don't, do you have any of the further? No. Okay, thank you. Judge Wilson. I, I don't have any questions of the government. Uh, Mr. Steinberg, you can continue. If any other judge has a question. Um, Chief, I'd uh, like Mr. to ask one brief question of Ms. Sure. Steinberg. Let's focus on the time after the NPA was executed. Uh, 
the major term of the NDA was that Mr. Epstein plead guilty in state court to it was prostitution of a minor. One of the crimes was prostitution of a minor. Is that correct? Yeah, that's the, that's the crime under state law. Right, I understand, right. but the crime was prostitution of a minor. That was one of them. I think he oh, had right. to enter a so plea to two my, different my, offenses. My record question is, so the NPA has been executed and the major term was that he plea in state court to two charges and that didn't happen until seven, eight months later, is that correct? In July yes. of 2008. Right. Help right. me with the prosecutorial discretion of that Judge Wilson talks about and others and, and why after the NPA is fully executed, the government could not turn over a copy and give a copy of the NPA so the victims, they could tell, well, they don't even have to give them a copy. They could tell the victims who constantly inquired, we've done an NPA, he's gonna plea in state court so that they could have gone to the state court judge if the victim so chose and say, please don't accept this plea. So is there any reason why you could not have, have told the victims after you execute the NPA in September, 2007, all the way to when the plea was taken in 2008? Why did the government not only not tell the victims but misrepresent things? Respectfully, I'm at a bit of a disadvantage because I was not the person who made those decisions. I can only rely on what those people have said in the underlying litigation. And the position that they took is that until Mr. Epstein actually fulfilled his part of the bargain and pled guilty, the NPA had not been fulfilled and the investigation continued until the very moment he stepped into that courtroom. All right, and I'll so, accept that. But nonetheless, under the conferral, the so-called prosecution has been resolved. The prosecution discretion has been exercised. They've come up with agreement. Why under the statute would you not confer at that point in time with the victim to tell them the status of the case? I think there are two parts of that answer. The statute requires that there be a case which is defined as something beyond an investigation. If it included an investigation, then of course the statute could have said investigation, but it talks about a case. And when a person is looking at whether the CBRA applies, it would make sense for them to see, is there an actual case on file and who's the attorney of record for that case? That's the most logical way to construe it. And that's how also someone would determine whether or not there is an actual federal offense. What is that federal offense? And am I a victim of it? Ms. Steinberg, so that, that kind of brings me back to the question that I had posed to um, Mr. Cassell, uh, which is, uh, are, are you aware of any uh, statute where uh, a federal court has interpreted the, motion, the word motion to mean two completely different things in the same text? That is, on the one hand, if there's a pending criminal action, the word would be given its ordinary meaning. That is, it's a motion. <laughs> and, uh, if, if there isn't a pending criminal action, then as I understand the other argument, the, the, the argument against your position is the word, the word motion would take on a completely new meaning and would operate 
as a pleading that commences a civil action where I guess the federal rules of civil procedure would apply and and the defendant who would be a party to the criminal action would not be in a party to this action but nevertheless the court could be uh, entertaining uh, a determination about whether an offense has occurred and whether this person is actually a crime victim have we is there any instance where contrary to the presumption of, consi uh, of consistent usage, we give that same word two different, completely different meanings depending on the facts? I I'm certainly not aware of, of any instance in which that would happen. And I think it's necessarily the case that if someone were to initiate a separate action by any name, whatever, if it's a motion or a petition, you know, give it whatever name, you know, one would choose for it, the court necessarily has to conduct an adversarial proceeding to determine if the elements of the CVRA are met. And that means determining whether there is a federal offense. Once you determine what a federal offense is, figuring out who the victims are, that means taking affidavits or declarations from prosecutors, from agents, deposing them, producing discovery. And that is exactly what has happened here. 12 years later, we still haven't resolved this. And so this is exhibit A as to what it is that could happen. Um, Let me ask you a question to follow up on one of Judge Branch's questions about the change in position uh, in this case. It was my understanding that the Office of Legal Counsel uh, issued its memo interpreting this statute and saying that it doesn't apply pre-charge in 2010. Is that right? Yes. And so that was after the line attorney sent these letters? Yes. And so if we were to care, I mean, just explain the way the Department of Justice works, if we were to look at what the Department of Justice thought on this, which one should we look at? Should we look at the one that the line attorney, what they said, or should we look at what the Office of Legal Counsel said in its opinion? Well, just again, just sort of to reflect what it is that might have been on the minds of the lawyers in Florida, they did send those letters indicating you know, that the victims had those rights. When Ms. Wild filed her petition, the first thing that that office argued was that the CVRA did not attach pre-charge. And so that office always took the legal position that the very same position that we're taking today and the same position that OLC took in December of 2010. I think what went wrong is in an effort to provide the most broad range of rights and to be as inclusive as possible, again, in the sense of, you know, just trying good policy or as a good human being to do the best that, that they could and for the victims, they erred in making a representation that was technically not true. Well, and the lawyer who the lawyer who sent that letter, she thought they were going to prosecute Epstein, right? I mean, that's yes. that was her assumption that he was going to be prosecuted. Yeah, there's a lot of things that are really peculiar about this case, undoubtedly. And can I can I follow up on Judge Brasher's question? I'm looking at the OLC memo now, and it refers in the second paragraph to an earlier preliminary determination in 2005. <clears throat> it says, see email to Rachel Brand from Luke Sabota. Um, preliminarily concluding, just as the final conclusion uh, sort of came down in 2010, that the act does not apply pre-charge. So it seems to me that you, there, there is a bracketing. There's, in 2005, there is a preliminary determination that the act does not apply pre-charge. Then you have these victim notification letters from line lawyers. And then you have in 2010, a more formal resolution of the issue by OLC. Is that chronology correct? That, that's, I've read it as well. I haven't seen that email that's being referenced, but 
it is certainly my understanding that the legal position of the department has always been the same and the attorney general guidelines um, that regulate our behavior um, also indicate that the CBRA attaches post charge but that as prosecutors we should always do our best to go above and beyond and I think that's what was happening here um, and you know sometimes in going above and beyond maybe um, you know we need to be more careful about why it is that we're doing what we're doing um, when someone has good intentions um, they can kind of turn against us the cyber uh, judge lot oh, um... oh I'm sorry judge branch go ahead go ahead go ahead Ms. Steinberg, just one point of clarification. You've said the line attorney made these decisions, but these letters were going out under the name of the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of Florida, Alex Acosta. Isn't that correct? I, I'm sure his name was on there just because that's how our letters work. We often have our U.S. attorney listed on our correspondence. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean the U.S. attorney has read them, um, but that I wouldn't surprise me if his name was on there. Thanks a lot. Yeah, um, I, I wanna ask about the mootness issue a little bit. So your position in your brief, I think, is that conferral has happened in the New York case. And what I heard Mr. Cassell say um, uh, in his presentation is that the New York case is completely separate from what happened uh, to this criminal act in, in Miami or in, in South Florida. It, it, correct me if I'm wrong, is the New York case involved a, a large scale conspiracy over a number of years involving sex trafficking? Is, the, is it the position of the, the the, the Department of Justice, and is it part of the New York prosecution that it encompasses all the activities that happened in Miami? And if so, how does that impact the conferral rights? Well, the New York case, the indictment on its face, when you read it, it talks about conduct in Florida and two of the victims, not by name, are identified as Florida victims. And so the conspiracy is broad. It covers a number of years that includes the same years as the Florida case and includes victims and um, happenings in Florida. Um, and so that's that's true. And then with respect to the argument that you cannot prosecute a person for, I mean, it's a, a sex act that occurs in another jurisdiction, that that's not true. That's just legally untrue. Um, 1591 is not just about that act. It's about the procurement, um, as one of the verbs is, I believe, um, or obtaining a person for an act of sex trafficking. And so it's not just where the act happens. It's also the facilities of communication and the events that occur um, that lead up to those events. And I mean, that's just the nature of a federal prosecution is it'll often um, be something that can prosec be prosecuted in multiple districts. Okay, uh, Ms. Uh, Steinberg, um, thank you. Um, we're gonna turn now um, to Mr. Uh, Cassell. Mr. Cassell, I don't have any questions, so you can just go on. You need to be unmuted though. <laughs> remember the warning I gave you. <laughs> uh, thank you very much. Yes. Uh, let me, uh, if I could just respond uh, to your point about using the word motion in two different senses in the same statute. Uh, take a look, if I could direct your honor's attention to D3. That is where it says that a victim may assert in the district court uh, a right and that uh, the opportunity for assertion also extends to situations where no prosecution is underway. Yeah, but the government the has, has explained how, what, how that can be read in a very plausible way that gives the, the, the word motion its ordinary meaning. Well, it cannot, with all due respect, their answer doesn't work for situations where no prosecution is underway. The second sentence in D3 says a victim can assert a right when no prosecution is underway. 
by definition, that will require... That doesn't mean that a charge hasn't been filed. It means that, well, it, it, no prosecution underway, the ordinary meaning of that term would be no prosecutions underway. There is no prosecution that is a court case prosecuting someone in which the, the victim could file an action. Uh, and so the, the term motion must, by definition, operate in a way that allows a victim, when no prosecution is underway, to assert her rights. Judge Wilson. So, Mr. Castle, if I understand your, your argument, you interpret the Crime Victims Restitution Act to permit a crime victim to sue the United States Attorney for violation of subsection A5 or A8 while the case is still being investigated. Is that is that your argument? Not to sue the U.S. Attorney, but in the words of section D3, to assert their rights uh, to, uh, for example, confer or to be treated with fairness. How, how do you get into federal court without bringing a lawsuit against the United States Attorney? Well, you file, as we did in this case, we never filed a lawsuit against Alex Acosta. We filed a petition to enforce Ms. Wilde's rights. And uh, the government never argued that that was somehow a defective procedural vehicle for asserting rights. In fact, I think we heard Ms. Steinberg this morning say that the uh, Crime Victims' Rights Act presupposes that there will be enforcement actions that victims necessarily have to bring. The so best way to conceptualize those actions is they are ancillary to other criminal events, and uh, they're docketed uh, for administrative convenience as a separate action. That, that would mean that, the, that a district judge could order the U.S. attorney to not enter into a non-prosecution agreement with the subject or target of an investigation unless the victims are notified and have an opportunity to weigh in? They, I, I would phrase it just slightly differently. The government has to confer with victims when the case is matured to a point uh, that uh, the, the A5 right to conferral attaches. Yeah, but my question is, can, can, if we accept your argument, that means a district judge can order the United States attorney not to enter into a non-prosecution agreement with the subject or target of investigation until all victims have been notified and have an opportunity to weigh in. Is that right? Only if first that is reasonable to do Secondly, the case is matured to the point where there is an attorney who's been identified as the attorney for the government in the case. And we submit that also that there would be additional uh, requirements implicit in that language, such as the completion of an investigation, drafting of charges and negotiations. With the and and if, the if the United States attorney violates that order, can the United States attorney be held in contempt of court? Well, that's never happened in 16 years of the CVRA because uh, I'm sure Ms. Steinberg could confirm or others that- but Could that happen if, if the U.S. attorney decides that it, it would impair the, the safety of cooperators or jeopardize the investigation to notify crime victims of the possible negotiation of a non-prosecution agreement if the attorney for the United States decides that he could not do that. The judge could hold him in contempt of court. Well, that sounds like a situation where the act wouldn't uh, give a right to conferral because it would be unreasonable to give a right to conferral in that setting. 
Let me just say that the CVRA has been on the books for 16 years, and there's never even been an action to hold the U.S. attorney in contempt, let alone a situation where judges had to hold someone in contempt. The hey, government Martin, Mr. Cassell, uh, I just wanted to give you a chance to respond to the government's, what I understand stood them to be saying. We've already given uh, Ms. Weil all the rights that she's asking uh, the court to enforce in terms of the uh, right to confer on the co-defendants. Well, there's no record on that, so I would submit if the court's going to base its determination on that, we at least be given an opportunity to brief that. There's never been conferral in a meaningful way. She wants to go to the prosecutors in Florida and say, prosecute the men and women who abused me. And the U.S. attorney's position is we can't because we've signed a non-prosecution agreement. So conferral is meaningless. And the Fifth Circuit's decision in Ray Dean is very instructive on this point. They say that the right to confer has to be meaningful. That is, it has to have the potential to shape the resolution of the case. Otherwise, the prosecutors would just wrap up the case and then confer afterwards. Mr. Casella, I want to go back to Chief Judge Pryor's question and his discussion with Ms. Steinberg about the supposed two meanings of the word motion, that, you, that your interpretation gives the word motion two meanings. But I'm not sure I agree with that because isn't it the statute that provides that CBRA motions can sometimes be filed in pending actions and also sometimes when there's no prosecution pending? Absolutely. Uh, that The word motion has to allow the victim to do something in a situation where no prosecution is underway. And we submit that what we did in this case, which has never been challenged procedurally by the government, was the right way to handle it. She filed an enforcement action, and then as that action moved along, she filed a motion to at the appropriate points. Judge Brands, I'm, I'm sorry, Judge Newsom. Uh, all right, first, Mr. Cassell, so sorry for mispronouncing your name. I've been calling you Cassell for a year straight and, and misread the minute notes to place the accent on the on the first syllable, so I'm so sorry. I outsmarted myself. Um, blame it on the courtroom deck. Yeah, right, exactly. Uh, <laughs> ship blame. Um, so my question is this, would you address for me, please, Alexander versus Sandoval, because in Alexander versus Sandoval, the Supreme Court has said, and this is picking up on a point that Judge Wilson was making, we're done with implying private rights of action. The, you know, the court says, uh, like substantive federal law itself, private rights of action to enforce federal law must be created by Congress. And the court says we need clear textual evidence that the, that the Congress created a freestanding private right of action. Where in the CBRA has Congress clearly created a freestanding private right of action? That is, uh, you know, a, a lawsuit that is that exists unconnected to any proceeding that came before it. Subsection D1. D1. And what is? Tell me what D1 says that creates a private right of action. Well, it, it says it doesn't use the term private right of action, but the, it is titled enforcement. So subsection D is a enforcement provision. D1, the crime victim may assert the rights described in subsection A. That was added by Congress, and if you look at the history, it was added because earlier crime victims' rights laws had the problem that you're describing. They were unenforceable. The very but, then, but then you acknowledge, right, that the vehicle for that enforcement is something called a motion. 
which is distinguishable in ordinary parlance from a pleading, which is the thing under rule three that typically launches a new piece of litigation. You, you go to subsection D3 and what you see is that the rights described shall be asserted in the district court in which a defendant is being prosecuted or if no prosecution is underway. And then the next sentence, the district court shall take up and decide any motion. That is assuming that in a situation where no prosecution is underway, a victim can assert her rights. Judge Branch. I don't have, I don't have any questions. Um, Judge Luck. I can pick up where Judge Newsom left off again um, on the underway. So as I understand it, the government, uh, the government's position, and I think the chief uh, referred to this earlier too, is that underway when it comes to prosecution means a filing of some sort of complaint or charge plus an active arrest. Uh, that is what triggers a prosecution. Before that though, where there's a charge filed or an indictment filed and there hasn't been an arrest, there is a proceeding there is something to file something, but a prosecution is not underway. Um, why is that not a reasonable, plausible, and um, faithful interpretation uh, of those words? Well, first of all, it reads out of the statute the words in C1 that says the act applies to federal agents involved in the investigation of a crime. Well, so, but, but here's, and I apologize for interrupting, counsel, but this is where I think uh, Judge Newsom's question was coming out, which is, let's say I agree with you completely that the rights apply beforehand. That is a separate and distinct question from Sandoval of whether a, a private right of action has been created. Um, so I, it's, not a, it's not enough for me, at least, to say, well, the right applies earlier, so the remedy has to apply earlier. It would seem to me that you need to show affirmative evidence in the text that the remedy applies pre-charge or outside the context of a proceeding. Well, all of the, the provisions uh, that we've been talking about, D1, for example, giving victims the right to assert their rights. You would have to say, well, they have the right to assert their rights, but not in this situation. You would be reading the CVRA to create rights without remedies, uh, contrary to Marbury versus Madison and, 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 and a whole host of cases since then, obviously. The very purpose of the CVRA was to give victims enforceable rights in the criminal justice process. But counsel, Marbury was a case that the Supreme Court dismissed. <laughs> well, counsel you, counsel, you would agree that there are many federal statutes that create rights that don't necessarily have a private cause of action attached to them. That's, that's not an unusual circumstance, correct? Well, I'm, I know that there are some statutes like that, but it would be, frankly, quite strange to interpret this statute which was designed to create a bill of rights for crime victims to be one of those that has meaningless uh, uh, rights that cannot be enforced. That Judge, was... Judge Lagoa? Do you have any questions? Uh-oh, it happened again. Judge Lagoa? Stephanie, please stop the clock. Ms. I have Tisa. no questions. No okay. questions. Oh, okay. Sorry. Great. Uh, Judge Brasher. I wanted to follow up on something that um, Judge Wilson asked. So I feel like you put a lot of force on this notion of reasonable conferral. And how would that really work if, if as you say, this motion could be filed outside of a prosecution, the rules of civil procedure apply to it. 
And then the reason that the U.S. Attorney's Office would give for not conferring is that we have this this secret deal where this guy's going to be a cooperating witness for us in this other case. Wouldn't wouldn't the U.S. Attorney's Office explanation and response undermine the the point of not conferring? And then wouldn't and I guess that's one question. And the second question is, wouldn't the fact that you you argue that there would be discovery? Wouldn't that also undermine um, the discretion to, to have that kind of agreement? Let me take your second question first. I believe this is the only case in the 16-year history of the CVRA where discovery has been necessary, and that's because the government obstreperously refused to stipulate to the facts that happened for no reason that's apparent in the record other than the fact that they would have been embarrassed if some of the information had come out earlier. So discovery is not a normal feature of the CVRA. This is a one in a, you know once in a 16 year situation. Now, going back to your earlier point, as you suggest, the rules of civil procedure could apply. The rules of civil procedure provide for sealed pleadings in appropriate cases, and the circumstance that you describe might well be one of those. If I could also take this opportunity, you mentioned the possibility of. I want to make sure that Judge Choflat doesn't have any questions. Judge Choflat, do you have a question? You're muted. You're still muted. No so, question. Okay. Um, and Judge Hull, do you want uh, Mr. Casella to finish or do you want to ask a question? He may finish. Right. And I have a short question. Go ahead. Okay. That sounds good. My understanding is that the OLC opinion was not a notice and comment proceeding. The one notice that it immediately drew was a few months after it came out, Judge Kyle wrote an angry letter to the Justice Department explaining that they were misinterpreting the law. And I assume those kind of comments would have been provided earlier on if the OLC opinion had been uh, circulated for comment, other than just being what seems to be, frankly, a litigation-driven document designed to help it win this case and avoid answering embarrassing questions about why this non-prosecution agreement was signed. My question is about the enforcement mechanism or private right action, however you want to phrase it. I think enforcement mechanism perhaps works here. But the comment about if no prosecution is underway, doesn't that have to be read with the very next phrase, if no prosecution is underway in the district court in the district in which the crime occurred? So that suggests that doesn't have, it can apply pre-charge. Can you address that? I think you're absolutely right. And if I could just take the opportunity to direct your attention to the next sentence, if the district court denies the relief sought, let me underscore that again, relief sought, Congress has said that victims can seek relief. Now, if that isn't a private cause of action or whatever, I, I think you're right. Enforcement action is a, a probably a better way of putting it. But Congress, I think, would be startled to hear people discussing this morning that victims would not be able to obtain, quote, relief, close quote, in situations where their rights were not being respected. Okay. Uh, Mr. Cassell, um, we have your argument. We appreciate you uh, presenting it this morning, both sides. It's well argued. Um, we are adjourned.